HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Roth Cheese, a trailblazer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit rothcheese.com. Time for Lunch is a new podcast from HRN for curious young eaters, where we focus on the serious questions. Aren't chickens tiny dinosaurs? We get to know our favorite foods in unexpected ways. We just like cheered like you would cheer for your classmate when they're round in second base in softball. And we just like, peach, 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 peach. Yay, thank you, peaches. Learn some new recipes and jokes. What does a boxer's mom put in his lunch? A knuckle sandwich. And load up on fun facts. Experts estimate that there are between one and 2,000 types of insects eaten around the world. So roll up your sleeves and dig in. Subscribe to Time for Lunch on your favorite podcast app so that you and your favorite young eater can catch up on the whole first season. New episodes of season two out each week. Good evening, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food systems and policy and how they impact all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting on Heritage Radio Network. One of the things I love best about being able to host this show is that I have the ability to speak with so many different players working to improve our food system in the public, private, and nonprofit sectors. But I haven't had the chance to learn as much about the work that the philanthropic sector specifically is doing to create a better food system for everyone, which is why I'm so excited that today I'm joined on the line by Devin Clattell, Managing Director of the Food Initiative at the Rockefeller Foundation, to talk about what the foundation is doing both overseas and right here in the U.S., especially in response to the COVID crisis facing this country. Devin, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, so, okay, for those unfamiliar with the work that the foundation does, can you tell us a little bit um, more broadly uh, what the, what your mission is at the Rockefeller Foundation and how long has it, has it been in existence? Sure. Happy to do that. So the Rockefeller Foundation is a global foundation. We're over 100 years old. Um We're headquartered out of New York, but we have offices all around the globe. And our mission since the very beginning has been to improve the well-being of humanity. And we do that by bringing data, science, innovation, collaboration to what we believe are really the kind of basic rights for people all around the world to health, food, power, and economic mobility. Um, And so we have active work going in each of those areas in the United States um, and in in countries uh, all around the globe. Um, How how big is the endowment? Well, the markets have been shifting, as you know, (laughs) Um, but no, our our endowment is 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 over four billion, four billion dollars. Wow. Okay. All right. So you guys you guys have some funding for a while. You're pretty good. Okay, great. And then, what about what about food specifically? How long um, has the Rockefeller Foundation been involved with food and ag programming, and where has a lot of that work focused? Yeah, interestingly, 
you know, given the moment we're in, two of the earliest areas of work for Rockefeller Foundation were actually public health and agriculture. So we've been working in the space of food and ag um, almost our entire existence. And in that area, the the work we're probably best known for is around what's what's now known as the Green Revolution, this sort of period of time in the middle of the last century where the world was really worried about not having enough calories to feed what they saw as kind of a coming population boom. And, and increasing agricultural production was really seen as um, critical to to the future of humanity. And Mm. uh, in that time, Rockefeller invested a lot in building up um, plant science and um, the sort of R&D infrastructure and operating infrastructure that went around with bringing better plant science to crops, particularly in developing markets. And so coming out of the Green Revolution, as folks probably know, um, you know, the productivity of crops like wheat and rice quadrupled in many places the amount of calories the world was able to produce rose dramatically. And that sort of era of work is largely credited with saving up to a billion people from the brink of starvation. And that's a legacy we're incredibly proud of. We continue to think that science in lots of forms has a really important role to play in sort of food and agriculture. But as we look back on the last hundred years and sort of ahead to our role in the future, we also recognize that even pre-COVID-19, the food system was facing sort of more complex and new crises beyond just providing calories. And in particular, we focus a lot on the sort of diet-related disease crisis and the planetary health crisis that are intricately linked with our food system. And so as we look ahead, we've tried to reorient the work of the foundation to focus on creating a food system that nourishes all people, that regenerates the environment, and that supports the flourishing of culture and community. Um, And we do that in different ways in different parts of our portfolio and in different countries around the world. Here in the U.S. in the last few years, we focused on um, increasing equitable access to healthy foods. And Mm -hmm. um, we've done that in a few different ways. But one of the ways that we've really leaned into is thinking about all the sort of big systems and and public budgets at, at various levels that go into the food system and how can we make those work for us in terms of not just buying food and securing food, but helping to advance the the sort of future of food that we want. And um, in the last year or so, again, sort of pre-COVID, we we started working with a number of institutions in the in the school space and in the healthcare space and um, other sort of large um, institutions that serve meals with public money to think about how you can make those dollars not just by food for people that need it most, but also to support local economies and farmers, also to support agricultural practices that we think are good for the planet, to support um, healthy nutrient-dense food getting to uh, the populations we're trying to serve. So that's been part of our focus over the last sort of year or so. Um, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about how your work has you know pivoted or or expanded in just a minute. But um, you know I want to like just also to sort of helping to continue to set the stage when we talk about your work as a foundation generally what is your role um do you you provide funding of course but like how do you kind of can you contextualize um the work that you are doing when you talk about being involved in these issue areas definitely so funding is a big part of it of course and a lot of our work is done in close collaboration with grantees and partners who receive funding for us to do work on the ground and to serve local communities um, and to advocate for changes that we we think are important in the food system and beyond. So that's absolutely the core way that we help to advance the work. Uh, another um, role that we play, I think, is is as a convener and sort of a neutral party in a lot of instances that is able to uniquely bring together thinkers and doers and policymakers and companies and, you know, medical experts and all sorts of different folks around a topic and into a conversation. And and sometimes having, you know, a neutral convener that's able to do that thoughtfully and and based on expertise and, and, and work on the ground, but, but someone who doesn't, you know, isn't coming from the private sector, isn't coming from a particular, um, uh, sort of region or, or or particular part in the supply chain, often that can help to unlock, I think, new collaborations and conversations. And so we do do a lot of that. Um, we also tend to fund 
sort of evidence gathering and new tools and, and capabilities. And in a lot of cases, that is investing philanthropic dollars on innovative approaches that others might not be willing to take a risk on yet. So um, as an example, I can say, uh, you know, we, one of the tactics that we've been looking at in the food system in the U.S. recently is something called a produce prescription, which you might have heard of, Mm -hmm. which is where you get a prescription from your doctor or healthcare provider, and then you can go use that to buy healthy foods. And that's a program that's been showing some real promise in pilots, but sort of didn't yet, doesn't yet have, I think, the the full evidence base needed to make um, uh, large companies, you know, national level companies or others sort of feel comfortable taking a risk on it or policymakers comfortable making policy change. And so one thing we've done in that space is try to invest in research and evidence gathering and, additional pilots at scale so that we feel like we know enough to know whether others should 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 be able to invest, you know, public and private dollars there. So sometimes we also play that sort of testing of solutions and evidence building role in, in a field. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's amazing that we still kind of need that. Like more people should eat vegetables. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, um, but it's true, right? I mean, I think in general, I think that there's been a big disconnect between uh, medical providers and the importance of eating a nutritious, balanced vegetable forward diet. So um, that is very, very interesting stuff. And so that's an example, would you say, is the food as medicine work that you guys are actively working on? Yeah, that's a part of our, our food as medicine portfolio. And, and you know, I, I think like, yes, I, it's not news it's not breaking news to anyone that we should all eat eat more vegetables. You know, I do think there's been traditionally in this country uh, a separation, perhaps, between the medical field in a lot of ways and the act of eating and cooking and shopping. And yeah. um, and yet now more than ever, that field is incentivized to have people eating healthy diets because diets are so intricately connected with with the vast majority of, of medical issues in this country um, mm-hmm. today. And so that's part of what we're trying to do also is bring um, is bring sort of like the economic case, the business case, the equity case, the health outcomes case, like all of these pieces together for, for some of these players that might not have previously seen themselves as part of the quote unquote food system, but really yeah. are and really should be interested in building a better food system for, for everyone. and um, so that's, I think, a, a big part of the food is medicine work that we're doing and that then that the field is pushing forward at large. Yeah, absolutely. And how much of a role of, do you, of technical assistance do you guys do you play? Or is that something that you typically kind of leave to your partnering organizations? Like with a grant, do do you also provide um, like counsel? We, it depends a little bit on the project and sometimes, so yes, sometimes we do find, um, provide technical assistance. Sometimes we'll bring in um, an expert institution or partner in that field to provide those services to like a cohort of our partners as well. So, um, you know, you can envision having a communications or policy grantee that you sort of ask to work with your other grantees in, for example, a new field like food is medicine to think about like, how can we make communications around this and policy around this kind of work for us all as a group. So sometimes it's a peer-to-peer support that we try to set up, and sometimes it's direct um, Rockefeller to grantee Mm -hmm. um, support. Great. Okay. So shifting to um, the effects of COVID and and how that has um, encouraged the expansion of your work in in certain areas. I let's like just to kind of give us a sense. I know that like at like for instance, some food banks are reporting as high as a forty percent increase in demand. Um, but can you give us a little bit more context around the extent to which food security in general has increased over the past few months, and where we're seeing most of that demand come from? I I think the demand has spiked incredibly over the last couple of months, and I can speak to some of the statistics. But I'll I'll also just start yeah. by saying. I don't even know that we have the data yet. And I also yeah. think that we're going to be looking at a, a lag in in not just in the data, but in the reality on the ground where I think food insecurity might continue to increase even as 
at least in some places, the sort of immediate threat of COVID-19 at you know, starts to decrease in terms of number of new cases. So I think we're just starting to get a peek into the the medium and long-term effects of, of this crisis on food insecurity in this country. And it's a very daunting door to be sort of looking into. But having said that, um, yes, early on, we were getting reports from food banks, in some cases, as high as 100% increase. Um, I'm sure some folks have seen the you know, really sort of heartbreaking photos of cars lined up in places like San Antonio, where, you know, 10,000 cars, I think, lined up in in one day. I'm a New Yorker, so I've been tracking the situation in New York. And I know there's parts of New York where people are lining up, you know, eight, 12 hours before meals are getting served Mm -hmm. um, to try to access food. So um, there absolutely is a crisis. There's been some new information that's come out over the last couple of weeks that estimate that, the rate of child uh, food insecurity in this country might be quadrupling to levels that we really have never seen before, at least not in the sort of modern era. Um, uh, Brookings recently came out with a report saying that uh, food insecurity was around 17%. I think it that's a troubling number. I think the number could actually be much higher if you count um, against sort of different metrics that look at household food insecurity over a longer period of time. But Regardless, it's clear that we're seeing a massive spike in a way that we haven't seen in anyone's recent memory. And I think that will continue to persist, particularly given the unemployment data that we're that we're seeing now reach yeah. about 40 million claims. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's important to say, too, that um, this was true pre-COVID and I think will be exacerbated by the COVID crisis. But um, these rates of food insecurity are also not consistent around different parts of the country. You know, regionally, there are regions, particularly in the South and Southeast, that have very, very, have traditionally, and I think to this day, have very, very high rates of food insecurity. Um, There's a rural and urban divide in lots of places. And then there's um, a divide against, you know, uh, demographic groups. So um, uh, African-American households, I think, uh, suffer from food insecurity at twice the rate of, of white households. I think Hispanics, it's about a 50% increase. So there, of course, are big equity issues at play um, with this issue as well. Yeah, um, I, I absolutely also agree that we're going to see a lag in the data pretty much with all things related to COVID. Yeah. I think even, even um, you know, basic like you know, infection rates and everything. So um, we are just we're living in such a time of crazy uncertainty where I think that you're right. We're not going to be able to tell the the full effects of any one issue uh, related to COVID for some time to come. Um, okay, so what about so schools are closed, kids are mm-hmm. home. How many? How many? Like you know, schools have been closed. How many um, kids have been affected by these these closures? I have no idea how many schools there are across the United States. <laughs> So the last number I saw was more than 120,000 schools closed across the U.S. I think it's the vast majority of American children that are home, you know, at least from sometime earlier this spring through the end of this school year in most places. And Mm -hmm. there are still questions about what's going to happen in the fall. Um, but, But the vast majority of kids are at home and... There are 30 million American children that participate in the national national school lunch program here in the U.S., and the estimate mm-hmm. is that about two-thirds of those, um, or 22 million, rely on those meals as their key source of nutrition for the day when they're in school. So mm-hmm. I think the school nutrition community immediately realized that with schools closed, there were going to be millions and millions of kids all across the country that um, would be missing a, a major source of nutrition. And, and those numbers, you know, per the, the, the imperfect data we just discussed are, are only likely to increase, right? There are probably many more children that would actually be relying on, on school meals now than there were in say January, February. Mm -hmm. So as soon as schools started to announce closures across the, the U S I think districts and schools and nutrition programs started to try to think really quickly about how they could continue to feed those kids and, and those communities. And, I have to say, like, the speed at which some schools were able to adapt and adjust was really remarkable. I was just reading a story 
um, earlier today about a district in Sacramento. And I think he said he got the email that schools were closed and 24 hours later, he was able to be serving meals to his students. And that's a really incredible feat of, of both sort of determination and innovation. Um, as you probably know, the school lunch program in sort of business as usual model is incredibly complex in terms of like the administration, the operation, (laughs) the bureaucracy, the the planning, the funding, everything about it is incredibly complex. And all of a sudden schools were closed, you know, staff were not able to access kitchens in many cases. They weren't able to serve meals on trays. They weren't able to go to cafeterias. Suddenly they were thinking about things like personal protective equipment for their staff, thinking about meals that could be served in driveways or delivered by school buses and packed in grab-and-go containers and like all these considerations. It's almost mind-boggling how many complexities there are. And these programs and um, professionals were able to pivot and adapt incredibly quickly and continue to serve meals. And I I think it's a, a often sort of overlooked but really critical part of our nutrition security infrastructure in this country sort of again, in like business as usual model. And I think in this crisis, the like irreplaceable role of these programs has really come to light for many folks. You know, food banks, as you said, are, are facing massive, massive increases in demand. In many communities, it, was, it might be challenging to get to those food banks or to get there and, and get the food that you want. Often a school is a familiar place that kids and families know how to find. They can see familiar staff. Sometimes they're getting familiar meals. And also it's important to remember that that, that is all f- also leveraging public dollars, right? USDA helps to reimburse for the cost of meals for these kids. So we thought mm-hmm. it was really, really important to keep these programs going. And frankly, we're both impressed by the, um, by the sort of rapid response of that system, but also by the need that we are hearing on the ground. Um, yeah. So, so in, April, um, these last two months have gone by incredibly yeah, uh, quickly. I have no idea. What <laughs> it's hard to know what week it is, much less yeah. what month. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, but in April, uh, we sort of built on our existing work in, in school, school food and issued um, several grants to organizations that are working directly with districts around the country to support um, the programs that were continuing to make meals available. And um, you know, are incredibly proud to support those programs. We uh, awarded grants to the Urban School Food Alliance, which is a sort of a membership model of 12 of the largest urban districts in the country. They have incredible scale in terms of how many students they're able to reach in these large districts um, and incredible need in terms of the amount of equipment and amount of staff time. And you can imagine all the things that they need to, to continue to make those operations happening happen. So we um, provided some support to that to them. We provided support to an organization called Gen Youth, which works with a sort of diverse set of districts all over the country, but including small and rural districts who are suffering, you know, a lot of the same same needs, often with fewer um, staff and and local resources. And then we also gave some um, funding support to World Central Kitchen, which is an organization that your listeners might be more familiar with, which you know plays a really critical role in these kinds of crisis situations in terms of making food accessible to to communities. And they've done some really interesting work in this crisis in particular about bringing sort of food service um, staff and resources into the so-called emergency food system. Yeah. Um, I think that that is, that's incredible. And these organizations certainly are really amazing, have done some some great work in the past. Um, and so I'm excited to see, I want to dig into a little bit about what each kind of has, um, like pledged to do with this funding and, and how that, that process that, you know, the, the awards process has looked like, but, um, I would say just generally, I, I totally agree. I think people, school food service, I think kind of gets a bad rap in a lot of ways. Um, Mm -hmm. either like the food, the food's bad or it's unhealthy. and, And I think, if you really know a lot about, there's just been a tremendous amount of work that's been done to increase the healthfulness of the, of the food that's being served. And there I've, I've been able to, 
personally meet and, and um, you know, talk to a number of really incredible school, school food ter- service workers who are just really dedicated to um, being able to feed and nourish these kids. So um, certainly without this program or with this, you know, the school food program programs for the country in jeopardy, it would be, I mean, just, it's an enormous like loss of resources. And it seems like the Rockefeller Foundation is, is focused on what are those big intervention opportunities to make large scale change? Yeah, I think, you know, I think school food has unfortunately for a pretty long time gotten sort of a bad rap, as you say, and also been, you know, I think sort of tragically politicized in a lot of ways um, in yeah. this country. And the, the folks that are in our schools serving food to kids every day, I mean, it's an incredibly hard job. Um, yeah. I find it hard to like get my own kids to sit through lunch half <laughs> the time. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's an incredibly hard job. The, it, the scale is massive in a way that I'm not sure most uh, Americans really appreciate in terms of just the number of meals that are served. You know, it's mm-hmm. the second largest nutrition program in the country. Um, we have a partner, Food Corps, who often says that, points out that if schools were sort of a restaurant chain, they'd be by far the largest restaurant chain in the country. And yet they're operating in all these sort of what what seem like at times bizarre constraints, right? It's like, imagine if you went to yeah. a restaurant chain and when you walked in, they asked how much money your household made to see which mm. meal they could offer. And then they told you you had like 15 minutes to eat and they could only yeah. procure their food once a year, eight months in advance. Like all these things that you would never put on that kind of operation in a private sector setting are are the realities of what those programs are dealing with every day. And And I'll just say that like one of the things that we're most focused on in terms of the COVID crisis is making it as easy as possible for these schools and these programs to continue to operate now and to be in a really strong position to thrive in the future. And mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of uncertainty that has come with with the kind of agility that I spoke about earlier. So they set up these operations in their driveways without knowing what they would be reimbursed for in a lot of cases without knowing what the regulation would be. I mean, it was unprecedented for schools and for the USDA when this was all unfolding, right? And I think the space is is really grateful that USDA and others provided flexibility for them to change some of the rules about how meals are provided. I think we really need to continue to see that flexibility from the USDA in the months to come so that there's some certainty for these programs that they can continue to operate the way they they, they have been and continue to serve these kids. Um, but, I, you know, I think that's also true as we look ahead to next year. And, and I don't want to jump too far ahead in the conversation, but one of our concerns, one of my concerns, frankly, is like these programs are always so resource constrained and and for them to lose even more resources or have spent more resources to try to react to this crisis and not sort of be made whole in some way coming out of it, I think risks that they will need to cut or otherwise adjust their programs, you know, for the next school year or the school year after that in ways that might hurt our kids in the long term. I think that's one of the things that schools and localities and national players are trying to think really hard about right now. Okay, I'm going to take a quick break and we'll hear a word from our sponsors, but we'll be right back, so stay tuned. Today's program is brought to you by Roth Cheese, a trailblazer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth has been making specialty cheese in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin for more than 30 years. Roth is best known for its award-winning Alpine-style cheeses named Grand Cru. Fresh Wisconsin milk, combined with expertise and affinage, is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. When you buy Roth, you know their cheeses will always be made with good ingredients, will always taste good, and will always make you feel good when sharing with friends and family. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. We're back on Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with Devin Clattell from the Rockefeller Foundation about their extensive food initiatives work. So how has, so, I mean, if, if I'm hearing you correctly, the, there has been no like systematic approach 
that has been handed down from the USDA in terms of this is how you can continue your feeding programs or this is, you know, any kind of guidance or, or anything like have the schools just been totally left to fend for themselves so that there's no systematic approach to feeding across districts and communities. I think what the USDA did well was to uh, try to try to remove as many of the sort of constraints that they could to allow districts to adopt the model that would be best for them. So so the USDA issued waivers for rules that had been in place, for example, around congregate feeding. So it used to be that mm-hmm. school kids had to come to the same place to get their meals. And that obviously doesn't make sense in this crisis context. So that was waived and certain waivers around meal patterns and um, even kids having to be present to pick up the meals. They allowed parents to go pick up, up the meal. So for the most part, I think USDA was focused on um, providing that kind of flexibility to districts. From what I have heard, there hasn't necessarily been national guidance. Um, some states perhaps have been better at, at issuing guidance, but mostly districts are making their own plans. Um, some districts, Dallas, I think I heard, has, for example, been using city buses in some areas to help to deliver meals to kids. Um other districts have partnered really actively with food banks or in some cases with sort of, you know, ride sharing or other transportation options to be able to provide food, not just for students, but also for families on site. And then in some cases, get those the kind of last mile to folks, um, to students and families homes who, who weren't able to get to the schools. Um, but I have not seen guidance for sort of a uh, across the board model. It's really been um, a little bit trial and error, and I think districts have adjusted as they've learned. Um, many have have learned from and heard from families that they actually didn't want to come to school every day to pick up meals. So I know in some large districts, they've moved more towards um, packaging multiple meals together and, and giving those out, for example, just once or twice a week. Yeah, which is actually a good, I mean, I think a, a point also that we need to make is that it's not just the national school lunch program, you know, it's like lunch and breakfast and, and after school and backpack programs. And there's just so many, you know, I mean, you could say not enough uh, support for um, addressing food insecurity in, in schools and, and that children face, but certainly there is a lot that happens just beyond lunch, right. In these, in these schools that is in jeopardy of where that much of which does not, you know, hasn't been able to happen. Um, Absolutely. And, and and it's worth saying too, that the, the other program that USDA rolled out um, is something called Pandemic EBT, which is a program that is meant to provide additional um, funding for families, for households whose children had qualified for the school lunch program to be able to have additional funding on their sort of SNAP or, or EBT cards to, to buy additional meals, which, mm-hmm. you know, I think, is something that a lot of folks in the space are really interested to sort of collect data on and understand what will the reach of that program be? um, What kind of impacts will it have in the end? Because I think it's a really interesting, innovative model and, and, you know, potentially something we could apply to future emergencies or to other periods of time when, when kids aren't able to get to school. The implementation of that program has been, I think a little bit slower than folks would have liked. It was sort of as a state-by-state model and um, glad to report that I think as of today, 38 states have been approved for that program, but it wasn't something that was available sort of on day one. And I think part of why philanthropy and, and others tried to move as quickly as we could to step in in those early days was to sort of fill that gap. Um, but absolutely government programs like that are going to be important as we go forward and and sort of look at the scale of the need. Yeah. And certainly, you know, governments are not able to, I mean, the federal government is not able to be typically as nimble as like a foundation or even a not, you know, nonprofit or, or others. But um, I think that there were some additional challenges uh, in this particular situation that um, probably means that there are even more, more gaps in, in service or lag time. 
Um, so, okay. So these three organizations that were selected, um, I want to, I want to talk a little bit more about that. Um, how were they, this is going to get kind of nitty gritty because I, <laughs> I, I want to know about the process. Okay. <laughs> how were they, how were they selected? What was the, um, like application, you know, period? Like, I mean, this is, this is, it seems kind of like more rapid response work that, that, the foundation was able to mobilize, right? I mean, when did you start working on, it's only, you know, it's been like, what, three months? So when did you guys, so when did you kind of initially start to work on this project? And then, you know, how long did it take to kind of put the grant out and how are these applicants selected? I know that's a lot of questions I just threw at you, but I'm like, tell me how it worked. (laughs) Sure. So and it's it's a mix. So Urban School Food Alliance was a partner of ours before the COVID crisis hit. Um, we had actually been supporting Urban School Food Alliance to, to do some work to build sort of databases and information sharing capabilities across districts so that they could be smarter about their food purchases and, and try to sort of unlock, therefore unlock ability to buy good food let's just say broadly. So healthier food, food that's sourced in a more sustainable way, et cetera. So they were pre-existing partner of ours at the foundation before COVID. And um, I think we started the conversation like second or third week in March. It was pretty early on that they called us and said, like, we're hearing this from our districts and districts are really worried about how they're going to operationalize these new programs when schools are closed, how they're going to fund them, like how let's have a conversation together about how that could work. So um, that was a conversation that started in March. And then as we on the food team started to hear more about the need at schools and, and just, you know, understanding sort of the, the breadth of organizations that were trying to work towards this, we realized that we absolutely wanted to support Urban School Food Alliance and their very large urban districts, but that we also wanted a partner that would be able to reach smaller and and rural districts and other parts of the country. It was important to us to be able to reach a diverse set of districts. Um, And Gen Youth had set up a school nutrition fund that was giving grants to each, um, to, to, to some of those small and rural districts and also working on a tool that we thought was interesting which is sort of like a digital resource locator through a partnership they put together with SAP called SAP for Kids that was helping families to identify where they could go for school food. So sort of mapping out school feeding sites and providing basic information like hours and sort of distribution days. Um, And so we had several conversations with Gen Youth. And then World Central Kitchen is also a partner that we've supported in the past not so much in connection with schools, interestingly, but more in connection with their kind of emergency relief work in, in places like Haiti and others. And yeah. part of why um, we actually reached out to some of these groups, part of why we reached out to World Central Kitchen is that we wanted, um, we were hearing more and more stories of families, entire families coming to schools and asking for meals. And under USDA regulation, schools only get reimbursed for meals provided to students. But we were hearing yeah. from schools that they felt like they really couldn't turn away, nor should they turn away other community members, especially parents and others in need when they were already out of school picking up food. So part of the reason we sought out World Central Kitchen and, and talked to some other partners is that they were able to provide food um, to other community members alongside school meals in some cases. Um and so we partnered with them to provide support specifically in a couple of grab and go sites in, in one in Newport News, Virginia, one in Augusta, Georgia. Um, I should say that like these are organizations that we've s- chosen to support. There are lots of organizations in the space that are doing really good work. We are on the phone with many of them um, almost every week or, or fairly often to try to coordinate, you know, broader levels of support and mm-hmm. how we can use our voice. Um, to help to bring attention to this issue and how we can call for things like extension of USDA waivers. Um, in the cases that we've described here, we also, you know, with Urban School Food Alliance, our support helped to seed a fund that they were then able to stand up to collect additional contributions and donations to help support these programs. So um, 
Mm-hmm. I don't know if I answered so, all of your questions, yeah. Jenna, but that was a little <laughs> bit about the process. <laughs> Good memory, and yes, that was a lot, a lot of them. So for so just in terms of how it works, so like Urban School Food Alliance. I mean, I always thought that they kind of they're more of a not like a not like a lobbying group, but they you know they they represent like um, a big chunk of the you know the amount of I would say like they were like what like 3.5 million kids or something like that right mm-hmm. and they have the biggest school districts who participate and that they kind of come together and work together to push through change like start and provide you know assistance to each other and um other schools to um do things like have more sustainable um like compostable plates and and better better quality chicken and things like that so when you say when you talk about funding, you know the Urban School Food Alliance are these are the dollars going to their individual districts to actually do the feeding? Like, is it? Yeah. What is? Yeah. What so is, yeah, yeah. It's a it's a good question, and I think you know I don't want to speak for them, but as far as I know, this is a a new model in a lot of ways that they stood up for this really unique situation. Um, mm-hmm. I think you're right. Otherwise, a, a lot of their time goes into sort of information sharing and coordination across districts. Um, in this case, they they essentially set up a, a fund, what we would call a, a fiscally sponsored fund that um, is collecting contributions and donations. And then those contributions and donations are going directly out to districts. So there's um, a decision process okay. in terms of how the funds get allocated. But so it's, it's a separate it's a separate fund from the sort of like business as usual operations of urban school food Alliance that they set up for this, for this emergency situation in particular. Okay. And how, and then in terms of the, the policy work that, that is being done that you that your team is working on um, there, is it, is it particularly around um, wanting to see these waivers being extended? Are there any other kind of, you know, policy initiatives that you guys are focusing on now or will are looking to maybe become involved in down the road? I think we're working on on two levels. So in the in the very near term, I think extending these waivers, you know, particularly around what we call the area eligibility waiver for schools, which which really helps to to sort of lift the administrative burden of having to identify income levels for each student that's coming, you know, each household that's coming to, to pick up food. Um, the area eligibility waiver and then a, a few other waivers around um, both the National School Lunch Program and, and programs like WIC, we think are an urgent and we hope fairly straightforward sort of ask from USDA to extend those flexibilities at least through September. Mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, still part of the what I call the rapid response to this crisis so that's one level we're working on is just like how do we continue to help make sure kids are nourished and and families are fed in this in this in the midst of this crisis. Mm-hmm. I think you know you you and I when we were talking earlier we're talking a little bit about like looking to the future and are there reasons for hope. I, you know I think one of the um, one of the things that has shifted over the last couple of months is that there is a lot just more visibility and attention being paid to the food system in the U.S. that we've ever had before, yeah. and folks that have worked on issues as you have, and I'm sure lots of folks you talk to have like food waste, like equitable access to healthy food, like labor, you know, all these issues that um, we fought for years to try to get people to pay attention to in some instances. <laughs> it's like suddenly they're on the front page, literally of newspapers. Yeah. And and so I think that that creates, you know, that plus the sort of regulatory and policy change that we've seen these large federal and state agencies make in response to the crisis and just the innovation happening on the ground, all those ingredients together, I think, create a really unique window to sort of rethink and hopefully redesign some of the parts of our food system, including policy. And so we're in the middle of a process right now of trying to engage with a broad set of stakeholders to, to see, like, how do we make the most of that moment? How do we um, think about where we could take learnings and data from this really extraordinary time and put those towards addressing a lot of the structural issues that we know our food system has had for a really long time. So that's a much sort of longer term effort in terms of how we, how we build back better, but it's something that we're very actively engaging in 
at the moment. And so, and just what do you, I mean, one of my questions was like, what do you think this experience means for the future of your work at the foundation? Do you think that, well, how much of your work is like your food and ag work specifically now? How much of the portfolio is dedicated to international efforts versus domestic? And do you think that that will change in the future? I think, so it's a, it's about half and half right now in terms of food and ag, you know, roughly. So we do have a team um, that's looking, actively looking at the situation internationally. And, you know, there's a lot that needs to be done internationally as well, of course. Everywhere. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, I think we will continue to do both. I think what's, um, for me personally, what feels like it's shifted a little bit over the last couple of months, which I did not expect is, you know, last year, part of the narrative and the strategy around our work was really communicating that although we hoped we were moving beyond kind of a hunger crisis in this country and, and, and globally that we were facing this sort of joint climate and nutrition crisis. And mm-hmm. now the question is, how do we address which I, what I think might be a real hunger crisis over the next couple of years, but do so in a way that doesn't just address that crisis, but also continues to move us towards our long-term goals. I think to build the infrastructure and the policy and the philanthropic support and the, you know, everything else that will go into addressing this crisis to build all that just with the short-term goal of providing calories is not enough. Like it absolutely, we need to feed people. We need to feed people right now. It's really important, but we need to do so in a way that continues to move us forward toward, you know, regenerative and nourishing and equitable systems that we all want. And I think that's a really unique, it's a daunting task, especially when you get into the area of policy. But I think it's also a really unique opportunity and a unique moment. So yeah, 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 absolutely. The opportunity to kind of join food insecurity, you know, healthy food access and the sustainability of our of our food system um, and beyond. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we can start to to coordinate across those issue areas and move to to get, you know, move forward together? <laughs> yeah, I hope um, so. I mean, I, I think yeah. we, I hope we can. Um, I, I think, you know, yeah. go ahead. That seems to be like a big part of the work that you got that you, that you guys, <laughs> the foundation, um, you know, seeks to to do. I mean, has been doing in the past, but this is essentially an opportunity for the foundation to play, you know, even more of a role. Yes, I think that's right. We're, we're we're trying to help. You know, we're trying to provide space and resources for the folks that have been working really hard on this issue for a really long time to continue to do so, to come together to bring newcomers to the conversation, whether that's the public broadly, policymakers, companies, you know, other donors to bring all those folks together and really think about how do we, um, again, sort of use this moment to move forward. And, you know, of course, like in the midst of everything else going on in the world, we're all looking at an election year. And I think one thing I hope will Uh, materialize this year is that candidates at local and state and national levels are thinking about their food platforms and thinking about food policy as a part of their broader platform and that, you know, the public is asking important questions about these systems because it's going to be more important now than ever that, that we have a thoughtful path forward. Certainly. And also, I think one of the things that this has, this whole experience has kind of brought to light even more is how vulnerable our food system is. You know, for like that, that means everything from like the supply chain to uh, like all, all aspects of the supply chain, I will say. And so hopefully it is, um, you know, more on people's minds as they as we do head into an election um, season. And unfortunately, a lot of people need to be directly affected before. I mean, that's just my experience. I feel like once people are sort of touched by an issue, it, it sparks, um, you know, interest in, in making change. But I think that this is something that unfortunately has affected so many more people than, I mean, ho- hopefully we use this as an opportunity to move forward. Yeah. Um, 
Okay. So what, um, what can our listeners do, uh, who want to be involved? How can, how can they be helpful now? I think so. So one thing that we're, we're trying to do is just make sure that all the folks that are doing this really good work feel, you know, seen and appreciated and, um, energized by their community. So I would say if you're in a community or if you are going to school to pick up food, like please support those folks, please thank them, please reach out to superintendents and others and say what an amazing job they're doing. It tends to be, you know, not um, the kind of work that's celebrated as often as it should be. And and we're just hearing from communities and, and schools that that's really important at this time in particular. So I think that's something everyone can do in their communities. And then, you know, more broadly, you know, we were just kind of touching on it. I think ask these questions. I think ask about um, food policy as you're engaging in the political process. Ask about it as you're going back to your schools in September. Like, how how are these programs going to work? How can communities be supportive of them? Um, you know, what kinds of support to food banks and others in your communities that are, are working really hard to provide food access? What, what do they need? I think that's the most immediate thing. And And I think... Um, as we were discussing the crisis, this particular crisis around food insecurity is not going to be over in the coming weeks or months. So it'll be really important to continue to support those systems over the years to come. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Okay, last question. Where can our listeners go to find out more about the work um, and to kind of follow the progress of the Rockefeller Foundation's work in food? Uh, So you can go to our our website, uh, rockefellerfoundation.org and you can also find out more um, the Urban School Food Alliance, World Central Kitchen, and Gen Youth all also have their own websites that that have great resources about this issue and this work. All right. Great. Well, um, Devin, we are going to leave it there for today, but thank you so much for coming on the show and um, talking to us about the work that you you are doing. Great. Thanks so much for having me, Jenna. Okay, uh, we have to leave it there for today. I want to thank our sponsors for their generous support, as well as the show's engineer, Jeet Paul. Show music is by Tim Archer, and all episodes um, of Eating Matters are available on HRN's website or wherever you find your podcast. I'm Jenna Liu, and thanks for listening. Eating Matters is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right-hand side of our homepage. Thanks for listening.